So Darwin is used both to justify empire and to critique uh, empire and to justify capitalism and to critique uh, capitalism. So it's a great right uh, story about not only do science and politics go together, they go together in different ways yeah. and in ways that conflict with each other in, in, in some ways. So that's when things get really fun. The title of my course is Science, Culture, Power. Between science and power, those things that were supposed to be separate, even though they would get mixed up in these kinds of everyday saying sorts of ways, like knowledge is power. Well, wait, <laughs> I thought they were kind of separate, uh, but now you're saying they're the same or, um, but they do have that very, um, cultural notion of what counts as true it are those things that you can show well if this line intersects this line at that then we know for sure that this is 90 degrees that becomes the kind of model for all of truth Greetings, friend, and welcome to Our World Openly with Antony Kalkowski. Today, we have a riveting podcast conversation with Professor Mike Fortune. Academically, Professor Fortune understands himself as a historian and anthropologist of the life sciences, genetics, and genomics in particular. Fortune studied physics as an undergraduate at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute one of the oldest polytechnic institutes in the U.S., until he transferred to Hampshire College and switched to philosophy of science. He worked in Washington, D.C. at the Institute for Policy Studies for a good chunk of the 80s, before completing a Ph.D. in the history of science in 1993 at Harvard University. For almost 20 years, he was in the Department of Science and Technology Studies at Rensselaer, before coming to the Department of Anthropology at UC Irvine in 2017. He is the author of several books, including Muddling Through, Pursuing Science and Truths in the 21st Century, co-authored with physicist Herbert J. Bernstein, and the book Promising Genomics, Iceland and Decode Genetics in a World of Speculation, and most recently, Genomics with Care, Minding the Double Binds of Science, just published by Duke University Press. In the podcast, we talk about the general intersections of science, culture, and power, loving and hating science simultaneously, and the need for that paradoxical relationship, the science, culture, and power in the Manhattan Project and genocidal weapons, the intersections of the science with military and empire, the importance of who funds science and therefore what scientific truths get researched, the history of Darwinian evolution, intelligent design as political agenda, how politics and science are made to be seen as separate but are not, feminist scientists, benefits of diversity within scientific collectives, the reason to be pro-science and the philosophical arguments for trusting sciences, even if their truths are often nebulous, 
ideologies of truth and purity in Greek history and in certain strands of the modern physicist and mathematical disciplines, and much, much more. The first 30 minutes, we discuss Fortune's fascinating academic and life history, and then dive straight into the depths of science, culture, and power. Now, I bring you Professor Mike Fortune. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this podcast. I am with an exciting guest. This is Professor Fortune. We have had a class actually together here at UC Irvine, which was absolutely amazing and fantastic. <laughs> I loved it. Uh, it was about science, power, and culture, and the way that those three domains intersect, and all the ways in which we can see those intersections play out in our daily lives. Um, and so, Mike, uh, tell me, please, what kind of drew you into the profession that you are skilled at? What kind of uh, histories brought you to where you are? And why did you <laughs> devote your life to becoming a historian of, of science and an anthropologist? Yeah, well, some of those, uh, some, maybe all of those questions are unanswerable. But um, I can at least make a, a stab. So I, uh, in class, I told one story, and I do like telling stories, mm -hmm. which is a commonality that both historians and anthropologists share. Um, but I told the story of being a kid and having, well, two things that I spent hours just like laying on the floor reading. One was the world book encyclopedia right uh and to be exact the 1958 world book encyclopedia which you know i think a lot of families in the the, was the 60s for me had those and there were like encyclopedia salesmen, always men uh who went around selling encyclopedias uh so you would have the encyclopedia in your house um and I particularly like the S volume uh, because of snakes and stars. And then the other big book that I had, and this is the story that I told, was Astronomy by Fred Hoyle, who's a big name or was a big name uh, astronomer to the extent that astronomers have big names. And it was a big book. It was beautiful, had these beautiful photographs. Of course, nowhere near as beautiful of photographs as we get now but still it satisfied something in me and kind of got me hooked on um imagining myself as being a scientist and i think i always had that um somehow or at least in the back of my head i was a nerd uh generally but especially about science um and so i knew uh when when I went to college, so I went to Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, and that name will come up uh, throughout some of these stories, uh, because I wanted to be a physics major. I wanted to be an astrophysicist. Mm -hmm. And to be an astrophysicist, you first had to be a physicist. So, and to be a physicist, you first had to get a bachelor's degree in physics. So that's how I kind of started out. And I mean, and this would be a way too long of a story, although I like 
long shaggy dog stories. Uh, and those are like the only kinds of novels that I, I like to read, but we're trying to keep this not too shaggy. Um, so over the course of being a f at Rensselaer, um, as a physics major, I began realizing that one, man, it was going to be a long slog to be, uh, uh, to get a PhD in physics. Mm. And like in the, in my sophomore year, I was already starting to feel like, and I was in honors physics, I was doing okay, but it was getting to the point where it's just like, this is going to take a real math chops and I'm not sure that I got those real math chops and I'm not sure I'm interested in finding out or if I need to develop them or, or not. And I also realized that if I didn't go on to get a PhD, I would end up like working at um, General Electric or Westinghouse or places that had, um, you know, need for, bachelor's physics uh, degree holders. Um, and at the same time, I started getting more interested in the history and philosophy of science. And that was, and uh, how I think that was always kind of there too. Um, my dad was a high school English teacher. And so, uh, I, I had a lot of exposures to, to that. That was also part of my nerddom. I helped him grade his Greek mythology papers. Um, and so becoming more and more interested in the history and philosophy of physics and realizing that I couldn't really do that by, uh, and, and like further explore those, by staying at RPI, just because there just weren't any, his, <laughs> there was no history department, mm. there was no philosophy department, there were historians and philosophers there, and I, and I eventually came back to be one of them. But the humanities and social sciences at RPI were almost non or very minimal in existence. They gotten better um, since then, but at the time, which was in the 1970s, um, there just was not a way for me to do that. So I was actually going to drop out of school for a while, and I was going to join the Jesuit Volunteer Corps. I was a good, still a good Catholic boy. Um, but instead, somebody said, you know, you should really look uh, at this other school, Hampshire College, where there's no grades, you write, you devise your own curriculum, you take courses that you want to take or don't take courses at all, and you basically like make up your own major. Um, and so that's what I did. So I transferred to Hampshire College, which is in Amherst, Massachusetts, and is in the news recently because they just offered uh, uh, automatic transfer to students from New College, Florida, the one that Ron DeSantis uh, has kind of taken over and the right has oh, taken yeah. over. And it was this like experimental hippie school, which is what Hampshire College was. Um, and there's very few of those now, um, almost none. Um, and so now that it looks like new college is going to go completely uh, the Hillsdale College route for people who know that reference. 
Um, Hampshire said, any student who wants to come to Hampshire will make the transfer as easy as possible. We'll get you started. You can do all of the things that you wanted to do and continue it here. So anyway, uh, Hampshire was that kind of school and it was a great experience for me. And so then I started reading just a lot more philosophy and a lot of history of science too. And it's when I, um, so when I transferred, I was assigned to, there were two physicists there. Uh, and one of them was Herb Bernstein, who came to our class because he happened to be coming through, through town. Um, so he became really my like prime teacher. Um, and through, but so I, you know, I, I had those interests in, in science, in stories about science, in the philosophy of science. Um, but still when I graduated from Hampshire, which was in January of 1982, um, I, I, I didn't know, well, one, I, didn't even entertain the possibility of graduate school. It was just like not in my imagination. So I went to work for Ralph Nader, um, which is maybe a fading name now. <laughs> yeah, and I see on the look on your eyes, yeah. it's like, yeah, it's totally faded. <laughs> um, he, uh, he was a big, he was the consumer advocate. Um, he started like the PERGs, the public interest research groups that there's like CalPERG and MassPERG. Um, he wrote a book called Unsafe at Any Speed, which was about the Ford Pinto, um, that would blow up if you got rear-ended the right way, the way the gas tank was arranged. Anyway, he did all of that kind of, uh, stuff. Um, I worked for him, for him briefly, and then I worked uh in washington dc uh, i'll try i'll try to be less shaggy and get up to the the back to the science uh part of it unless you're happy with these I'm, really I'm, shaggy I'm, stories i'm happy okay. i'm happy okay. with the stories <laughs> um and so i worked in dc uh i came out to the west coast for a while uh i worked in san francisco as a uh, for a temp agency, uh, and I eventually became their receptionist because I'm a very good receptionist. And um, and then I went back to DC, um, and I had like sort of odd jobs, not like like painting houses and uh, uh, fixing things, odd jobs, but like I read. And this was actually the best job I have ever had in my life. Um, was I worked for the National Endowment for the Arts, which at the time was in the post office building, uh, which eventually became Trump Hotel, right, mm. right across from not the uh, Treasury, but uh, you might have a kind of visual imagination for what that building uh, looks like. Great building to work in. My job, which was like a, it was just a three month job. Um, but I had to pack up, uh, uh, I had, they had a hundred books from small independent presses of poetry, short stories, mostly poetry and short stories, some non-fictions and some longer fiction, but mostly like edited anthologies. 
Um, and they would take those books to the Frankfurt Book Fair and the Buenos Aires Book Fair and sell, try to sell the foreign rights to these small press books as a way, you know, because the major publishers would do that themselves and they go to these book fairs to sell, you know, translation rights or, or whatever. Um, but the smaller presses had no way to kind of foot that bill. So the National Endowment for the Arts took them as a, you know, a, as part of their like government uh, service. So my job was to write up all of the like the little paragraph blurb on what the book was about and then outline what rights were available and uh, do all this stuff. And so like make this catalog which meant I had to read all the books. So I sat in the office and I'm like reading poetry and I'm reading short stories and then I'm writing like a quick summary and then packed them up and sent, shipped them off to these two book fairs along with the catalog of rights information. It was a great job. Mm. And that was right before I went back to graduate school or went to graduate school. There was no back to it. Uh, back to school, but in graduate school. And that too was this kind of like, not to my credit, I don't think, but I've never really like been ambitious and had like a master plan or, or even a master plan B. Uh, it was all just sort of kind of like it, stuff just seemed to happen. Uh, so really, uh, I, I was had these like, jobs like reading poetry uh and, and some other things and i was like i need health care uh you know and i need to be doing something else so and then somebody said well you should go to graduate school and you can go to graduate school in the history of science at harvard which is what i did right and so i don't like to mention the harvard part as you know um uh, because, you know, I'm from a small town in Western Pennsylvania and Harvard, this is that class thing that we were talking about before we started the recording and Harvard just was not in my class. And so I didn't, it was hard to me, hard for me to imagine myself there. It's, and it's still hard for me to like acknowledge or, uh, say that, yeah. Yeah, I have a PhD in the history of science from Harvard U University. Um, but uh, so that early interest, that little boy laying on the floor looking at pictures of stars carried through with this profound both fascination for and love of science, um, but also a kind of growing uh consciousness about all of the things that are wrong with it and have been wrong with it, um, both in how it's uh, often been used, whether it's to build weapons of mass destruction um, or, 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 you know, pesticides that eventually come back and start um, uh, poisoning the people who were trying to just poison the insects. Um, so uh, those kinds of stories in which science becomes uh, clear that it's sort of the promise of full enlightenment, unending progress, un unerring progress, um, 
clearly need to be needed to be rethought. Um, and so, and I guess I've always tried to figure out how those two things can go together, how you can both love and it, it's, it really is like a love hate thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so, but at the same time you realize it's like, well, we have love hate relationships all the time and you know, it's sometimes kind of weird, but generally we make it work. Mm -hmm. Um, so how can I both love science and hate it? Uh, and how can I get other people to love and hate, uh, science? both for the right reasons, and also to just better appreciate what a kind of crazily human thing science and the doing of it, it is. Right? Um, and so uh, all of the things that I've written, and, and you know, I've thought about, you know, I should try to write a memoir or a novel, or, and lots of people in academia, especially when they're like, trying to get out, um, start exploring other genres. Um, but I've never done that. I've only written about science. I feel like I'm only, I'm at my best in writing about science and maybe I just haven't given the other stuff enough of a shot. Um, but it's also having taught about it now for 20 plus years. Uh, it's even more kind of part of my identity that that's what I do. I try to, and I try to sort of perform it out in large part through telling stories that, um, and so it's not just about an information transfer, but it's about like, I, I want to show you how and why I love and hate science. And that way I think maybe students come to, love and hate it for the same reasons, which I think, I hope are the right uh, reasons. So that's the long, or I don't know if that's, and certainly not the end of the story, but that's the short version of the long story about how I came to be where I am. So I'll, I'll just kind of keep finishing it to get me here to this couch. So after I got my PhD, I again, because I, I don't have that big ambition uh, drive in me. Um, I spent a lot of time trying to stay out of academia mm. in part because I didn't want to write that way, mm. the way that academics write. Um, and in a kind of like uh, more class based writing, more technical, like, could you expand on that? <laughs> Just a tiny bit. Is. Yeah. Um, not fun. I mean, if there's one word for summarizing what most academic writing uh is it's not fun mm -hmm. and I, I don't understand that it's like uh, and i i shouldn't say that entirely because i have a lot of fun uh reading stuff so it, it's it, it's not just academic writing but a certain kind of disciplinary uh academic writing that I just wasn't interested in um, doing. So I, I helped start a nonprofit organization around science uh, called the Institute for Science and Interdisciplinary Studies with my former teacher and now colleague and becoming co-author, Herb 
Herb Bernstein. Um, and I taught like a course at MIT to just like bring money in. And I taught a course back at Hampshire College. And, and then I also in this process met uh, Kim, eventually Fortune, uh, who at the time was Kim Laughlin. Um, and she was teaching at uh, Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, mm. which is where I had uh, escaped from. Um, and she was in a science and technology studies uh, department. And for a lot of reasons, I said, yeah, no way am I ever going near that department. <laughs> uh, and I do not want that job. But then things kind of changed in, in a microwave, in a micro uh, kind of way. And they had a job open up that was kind of perfect for me. They wanted somebody doing like biomedical anthropology, anthropology of biomedicine, that kind of thing. Um, and so I, I, I fit and I applied and I got that job. So then for the next 19 years, both Kim and I taught in the science and technology studies department, which was an interdisciplinary department. There was uh, Kim as an anthropologist. There were actually a couple of other anthropologists of science. Uh, there was me as a historian at the time. Uh, and a political scientist, a couple of sociologists. So it was this kind of mix of people. And that's the great thing about that uh, field is that it has these multiple perspectives in it. Um, and so after 19 years, we moved to UC Irvine uh, in part because uh, Kim became chair of the anthropology department here. And this was the first time that she had been, and her degree is actually in anthropology, but it was the first time she was in an actual anthropology department. And she missed a lot of things about anthropology. There were a lot of things she didn't miss, um, but there were a lot of things that uh, she did. So it was a great opportunity for her. Um, they, uh, welcomed me because I've always practiced, even though officially I'm a historian of science, I've always been in the contemporary era when I'm doing my research and what I'm interested in, which is mostly um, genetics and genomics and biotech, bio, bio anything. Um, so I I've been in an anthropology department now, and I have a love-hate relationship with that discipline uh, too. But I've actually been able to make that, uh, I, I think, work because I, mostly I play on the love of anthropology, uh, even though, in, and in part because I'm not one, uh, I get to sort of overlook the worst or just I don't have to deal with it and I can just like, anthropology is great. Um, so, so here I am in an anthropology department uh, and trying to kind of adapt what were really history of science uh, courses into an anthropology frame. So it's why I still have in all of my classes, there's usually a week or two um, and then kind of threaded throughout of specifically historical historical readings and materials and topics um, just because I think they're important, whether it's the history of the Manhattan Project or 
the history of, you know, Darwin and evolutionary theory. Great story. I miss telling those stories. In my other class, I do Galileo because I miss telling the Galileo story. It's such an awesome, it's such a great story. And he's such the iconic uh, scientist and still is referred to as like, um, as the guy who stood up to power, right? Mm -hmm. And established the independence and ultimately superior power of science. Um, uh, but the story is just way more complicated than that. And maybe we'll have, uh, I don't know if I, I don't know if I could tell it in a three minute version. I can do it in 90 minutes. I know that. Um, but uh, so, so anyway, even though I'm in an anthropology department, I still use these historical materials to get people to think because a lot of things about science haven't changed. Uh, and the cultural relations that it has with the broader world that it's always being done within, um, those are kinds of st structures and patterns that repeat and persist and still raise the kinds of questions about, you know, what's the responsibility of the scientist? Uh, what does it mean to tell the truth? Yeah. <laughs> and how do you get to the point where you are confident enough to know that you have the truth to tell? So. Yeah, no, those are great <laughs> questions that I'd actually want to pick your brain on. But um, your your story is just it's so fascinating. And like, it, it almost kind of reflects this, this, your love hate relationship with science itself going from <laughs> these science institutions, then away into the and then I got to go back again. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it's this really interesting dynamic. Um, but, you know, maybe it might be helpful to start with then um, this kind of, you mentioned Galileo, right? And this kind of idea of a superior method of truth finding, you know, kind of science. So mm -hmm. um, if you could maybe speak on the, our kind of cultural, um, our dominantly cultural notions of science being this very kind of objective, somehow extracted from the human container, which only produces you know, yes or no answers. And especially like you get phys, you know, uh, you have this like purity scale that you mentioned in class of, you know, from yeah. the physicists to the, <laughs> you know, all the way to the, you know, physicists, biologists, then into the humanities and, oh, the physicists are more true than the, uh, you know, the anthropologists. Um, so if you could just kind of frame for us how science is not really this objective container and how you know, the human and the institutional and all of these other domains kind of go into it. And of course, you might, because it's it's a very, it's a very broad kind of question. It might be helpful if, if you can um, frame this through giving us another story, let's say the Manhattan Project and how you can see literally within history, uh, the ways in which the human informs and the institutional informs the way that truth is made and how uh, how science itself is is fueled by, by those more uh, subjective quote unquote elements. <laughs> um, yeah, well, um, I'm not sure that the Manhattan Project will get us into the subjective elements, although they can uh, kind of be there. But it is the one of the things that you know, 
as a historian of science, we kind of learn it as this is, and one of the courses I used to teach was called the cultures of scientific revolutions. Hmm. So it was, I, I did, I did Galileo and the scientific revolution, which by the way, took like 200 years <laughs> and played out very differently in uh, different places. So there was more than one scientific revolution and it wasn't, it was a really slow revolution as far as, as, res, as revolutions go. Um, so I did Galileo, I, I did uh, Darwin and evolutionary theory, and then bringing it up to like the Scopes trial and still uh, attempts to get uh, intelligent design taught in public schools uh, here. Uh, and then the Manhattan Project, and then the Watson and Crick and the molecular biology revolution. So I did a course called uh, The Cultures of Scientific Revolutions. But the Manhattan Project was one in which we were told how in all of those other ones, the kind of social worlds of science were relatively stable or at least kind of changing slowly. Manhattan Project was just this like immediate, real revolutionary uh, changes in how physics was done, at least. Uh, and then, you know, by extension, a, a lot of other sciences, although that took longer uh, to go around. But immediately, one, physics became militarized in a more concentrated and uh, obvious form than it had been. I mean, the military has always needed physics and engineers to like go about its business of killing people um, and taking territory <laughs> for capital. Um, uh, um, but, uh, so the, the Manhattan project and, and this is, I mean, at least we know, uh, that there were a number of scientists who, and so like, Herb, my colleague and uh, teacher, his dad was recruited to work on the Manhattan Project. And the recruiter said, um, we want you to come and join this um, wartime project. We can't tell you what it's about. Mm -hmm. And Herb's dad was like, no, I don't do that. <laughs> right? If I don't know what it's, I'm doing, I'm not doing it. So that kind of, and Herb thinks of it as a moral sensibility. Um, and that's a, a, a good way to think about it. It's just like, I'm not gonna work. I'm not gonna work on those kinds of projects. Um, a lot of physicists felt that way um, before. Um, uh, and, you know, so the example of Robert Oppenheimer, who becomes the lead scientist and really the leader of at least the scientific part of the Manhattan Project, the scientific and engineering part, part of it. Um, you know, he was a left-wing, commie, radical, Sanskrit reading, you know, intellectual. And the, his colleague says, you know, the last person we ever thought would like lead up something like the Manhattan Project would have been Robert Oppenheimer. And yet he does. Uh, and he carries it off brilliantly and successfully. 
But then, you know, and then again, later in his life comes to have some sorts of, uh, I mean, moral regrets. And he, you know, there were many comments that he kind of made along the way about, you know, the physicists have known sin, um, which, you know, pissed a lot of other physicists off. It's like, hey, speak for yourself, buddy. I know I don't feel like I've done any sinning. You know, I'm doing my patriotic duty. So, but I love, right, you can tell, I love those kinds of complexities and those stories and the fact that, yeah, there are different ways to put physics and morality uh, and politics uh, together. And so how do we, but the way to, you know, begin try to putting them together better, and let's just define better as fewer people getting killed, um, at least kind of starts by understanding those differences and the fact that they exist and they very much influence the way, the way science gets done, what science gets done and so on and so on. So the, the Manhattan project is a great story for that about how the federal government really comes into uh, managing science and really kind of setting the agenda for science through a funding structure that comes through universities like this and goes into the, the sciences from the federal government. Um, after World War II, that kind of huge social machinery just quickly gets established in uh, place. And it's a new, it's an, just a new way of doing f physics and, and other forms of science in, um, in, in a way that it hadn't been um, done before. And scientists becoming, in the case of the physicists first, kind of high level advisors to uh, governments. So the physicists for, you know, well, what new kinds of weapons should we develop? And, you know, we touched on in the class, the example of moving from the first successful atomic weapons to the question of whether you would develop thermonuclear weapons or the hydrogen bomb or the super, as it was called. And language is always the, one of the great things to, to track here. And we saw how, you know, all of those scientists who had advised on how to build the bombs, the atomic bombs, where to drop them, uh, on which cities, how do you study all of that? They, they were the advisors for that. They continued to be the advisors. And then when they're asked, should we build hydrogen bombs if it's possible? And that was a complicating factor. But assuming it, if it is possible, should we do it? And they all uniformly said no, right? Like everyone, uh, uh, everybody on that advisory committee said no. And some of them said, hell no. <laughs> it's a genocidal weapon. It's an evil thing. And again, that's the direct quote. It's the, an evil thing in any light. It's like, you can't really be more explicit than that. And at that point, the government basically, well, it doesn't actually say this, but it, it effectively says, yeah, go pound sand. We didn't really want your advice anyway. We're building this. <laughs> and so now here we are, you know, 27,000 nukes later. 
um, uh, over the advice of the scientists. So scientists begin to move into these worlds in which they were supposed to right, remain, if not like separate from at least kind of safely contained in a way that they weren't uh, infected or their purity, right? Mm -hmm. another, another one of those uh, words that means so many things. Um, uh, their purity was always the most important thing to maintain. So you could give them money, but you can't expect anything directly for that money kind of uh, thing. Uh, you can ask for their advice, but they can't tell you what to do. There was always these kinds of compartmentalizations that that happened, but they were they were changing. And in part, they're changing because there are a number of outspoken people who begin changing them, uh, and outspoken scientists. So um, the Atomic, the Atmospheric Test Ban Treaty in 1962 comes about in large part because Linus Pauling, Nobel laureate and chemist, really begins organizing, trying to organize the scientific community and other um, kind of organizations uh, too. Um, to say, we got to stop, as long as we're going to continue testing nukes, we should like not test them on Pacific islands where they will obliterate places and infect uh, the people who, uh, not in, in, in fact, but radiate the people who uh, live there as a consequence of the tests that got bigger than we imagined that they would. And all of the people who live downwind, which is pretty much everybody in the United States, of the atomic testing that's going on in, in Nevada. So there the scientists say, you should really like rethink this because not, not good. And they do, right? Um, it doesn't solve the nuclear uh, problem, but it, it was at least the, the right thing to do at the time. <clears throat> but you had the kind of larger point of you have these scientists who start to realize that's like they can't just um absent themselves or absolve themselves from the political and cultural and social effects of the work that it is that they're doing um <clears throat> so rachel carson being the other you know kind of uh famous example of scientists developing a real public uh, persona. Um, and that's why I'm always interested in those uh, few scientists who kind of, although growing in numbers, who rise to that level of public um, persona. In a way that even Oppenheimer was never, never really a household name, at least not in the way that Einstein mm. was, right? Mm. So, uh, an Einstein, a, a Rachel Carson, a Carl Sagan, um, <clears throat> these people became the kind of figureheads of being the scientist in, in America. And, and, you know, I'm woefully kind of parochial in my uh, focus on the United States because that's what I learned how to do in graduate school. A lot of other people, but 
they worked on German science or, or, you know, British science or French science. There was never, or very rarely, and only until recently, that um, there was study of scientific traditions in other places. There's always something on China, a big thing on um, uh, uh, Islamic uh, science. So when I was in history of science, again, in graduate school, one of the courses that we were required to take was in the history of Islamic science, which is, you know, during the European Dark Ages, it's, it's where, you know, real intellectual stuff is happening while um, in mathematics and in optics and in all of that. Um, <laughs> so how did I get from Carl Sagan to uh, Islamic science? I'm not sure, but that um, these figures of who, who a scientist is and why they should be listened to and how they're um, listened to, I, I'm, uh, I, I find that really important and interesting and something to, you know, try to teach about too. Yeah, you have this kind of like um, celebrity status being conferred onto some of these scientists. As you mentioned, you know, Einstein and um, Carl Sagan. It's so interesting that they're all, you know, physicists. Well, yeah. But again, like you had Oppenheimer but, who was a physicist, but maybe his, you know, leftist leanings kind of, made people a bit more hesitant to make him a, 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 a cultural celebrity um, with, you mentioned like, you know, the, the Islamic kind of sciences and also, um, you know, the sciences that come out in history just kind of like floated in my head. There's a lot of, I guess, science really kind of flourishes historically within empire almost it seems because you have the oh. islamic empire <laughs> you have the british empire which you know through colonialism was able and this is another kind of you know this discussion where this in order to do science you need obviously the resources the materials and so you know for the british to uh do uh, their specific sciences and create their specific technologies they need to extract uh, resources and value and labor from other continents, you know, with the Islamic Empire, I mean, it's it's also you're 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 spreading through and conquering territories, giving you not only um, resources but also intellectual labor, um, and you know, with the U.S., like I mean, the U.S. is for all intents and purposes a form of empire, I think. Yep, and. I think, you know, we are maybe so um, science-focused for one reason, you know, of course, we have a military that uh, is, is, is fueled and that empire sustained by a military that is fueled by science and technology, but also we have the affordance, we have the ability, uh, you know, the U.S. has the ability to produce that kind of science and to monopolize uh, what gets funded and and what kind of truths come out? You talk about the Manhattan yep. Project, right? It's <clears throat> it's really interesting how you have the um, you know what a you know thousands of science uh, scientists, including physicists, and, you know, so chemists going on uh, how all of their you know their minds and their intellectual focus and labor went to precisely what 
the U.S. military wanted them to do, which was create a weapon of mass destruction that now poses an existential risk to all of humanity and all of the other animals on the planet. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, all, all, all true. And let's don't let me get forget to get back to the empire uh, question, because, of course, I thought of a number of stories there. But at the same time, I think it's important to say that and now the historian in me uh, comes out. It's like, yeah, that seems like that to us now. That narrative makes total uh, sense and is a really compelling uh, ar argument. In 1944, <laughs> you have one, a lot of Jewish emigres from Europe. So the idea that you were like, they really th thought, and I think genuinely uh, believed that, and even the most kind of uh, anti-empire people among them um, were like, we got to do anything, we got to do everything we can to keep the National Socialist Germany from expanding any further. And if that means building this kind of weapon. And so they didn't, it wasn't like so um, intentional or intentional of just like, yes, world domination. Yeah. I mean, not entirely anyway, or not uniformly. Um, but uh, a absolutely that kind of very tight uh, linkage between, well, so the title of my course is science culture power between science and power those things that were supposed to be separate even though they would get mixed up in these kinds of everyday saying sorts of ways like knowledge is power well wait <laughs> i thought they were kind of separate uh but now you're saying they're the same or um but those connections were always there, and there was this codependency uh, from the beginning. And you can go back as far as you want. The whole thing only starts really happening, and it happens really in Europe at, uh, at scale, as we would say today, is because of the wealth that was extracted from the New World in the you know century before the 1600s and the 1700s which made european societies wealthy in a way that they hadn't been which allowed them to support a, this new kind of class of scientists who were their utility to the state and to empire was becoming more and more uh, obvious even if they were also interested in a lot of things that didn't seem to have that kind of apparent utility, right? um, that re that relationship was always there. I didn't. I don't use this example in that in this class that you were in, but in another class, I show the charter for the Royal Society in England in you know sixteen sixty seven or something like that, after the English Civil Wars. Um, which basically, you know, and so now you have the restored king and the scientists were kind of like 
being very careful during the Civil War about like not getting, not wanting to get bad with the uh, the Oliver Cromwell faction, but still wanting to keep their options open with the royalty getting them back in. And so the royalty comes back in and they establish the Royal Society, right? Which says, you know, the, we, you know, you scientists have license to do whatever you want, as long as it doesn't meddle in metaphysics, morals, uh, something, and there's a, a long list of things um, that, and so you have this contract that's like, stay out of politics, right? But that contract was enforced or set in place by this political e entity. So the no politics contract was dependent on a political contract. Right? So th those kinds of contradictions, I think, are, are also uh, really interesting. But the, so the empire story that I thought of, which, you know, so here is, Darwin is the exemplar. And so before Einstein was the kind of global phenomena of the scientist, it, it would have been Darwin. Mm. Uh, of having that same sort of recognition and fame, such as it was, I mean, but it, it actually, at least in England, it becomes a thing in part because um, while Darwin is doing his work, you have this enormous popular interest, in part because now you have a middle class that kind of has the leisure to read things in a new way. And so they become interested in science and it's like, oh, they're discovering these fossils and, oh, there's this, you know, controversy over how old the earth is. Is it 6,000 years ago? As we are sure it is, because that's what the Bible tells us it is, or is it longer, right? And so you had this, the first kind of popular interest or popular culture interest in science and reading about it. And so you had people writing for the masses. And so that was all kind of very much sort of setting the stage for Darwin, who didn't want to have really anything to do with it, right? At, at one level, even though he's a brilliant writer, right? Wrote better than Einstein <laughs> ever did, uh, for sure. Widely read. Um, um, but very reluctant to engage with the politics of evolution as it, you know, first started, um, playing out there, but the contradiction or the twist there is that even as, uh, Darwin is dependent on, and then in turn, uh, the empire needs Darwin, uh, to justify what it's been doing is it's like, look, the British, as we, as we can tell from Darwin, has survived because they're the fittest and we deserve to be in the ruling position here because have you had a look at all those other people out there uh, that are these funny colors and or different colors and wear these funny things? um they they can't run an empire we but right so the the empire needed that darwinian uh, argument 
But at the same time, what Darwin also does, and this as part of that larger movement, is what's happening in England is that the sciences and engineering become the way to both for somebody to ascend in their class uh, order. So anybody could become a scientist. Right? And you didn't have to be ro royalty. Darwin is called, you know, the last of the gentleman scientists. He doesn't have to, ha he doesn't have funding. He has his allowance from his uh, father. Um, so he never has a official uh, position. But now official positions are becoming, right, a, a thing, whether it's running museums or on expeditions or there's an opportunity for this new class of or new part of the middle class which are these technical experts right and their authority depends not on you know uh being a member of the landed gentry and the nobility uh which has this connection to god but their authority comes from we know how we know how to produce the truth that everybody has to agree to so both the, the development of empire, but also the kind of slow, not eating away from within, but the change from within that is more democratizing, to um, just put it that way, than the empire would uh, allow for. So there's more movement in part through the sciences now uh, class movement, but also movement of power from the House of Lords to the House of Commons. Mm. That way. Um, but it's still an empire. Yeah. <laughs> so, but both, all of those things are going on. That uh, immediately I think of, um, I guess, maybe how, you know, truth itself and the ability to produce truth, whether um, it's, you know, valid under, uh, certain methods or not creates a ability to exert power and so when you had darwin there was of course these you know these very contentious battles within the truth that the church would present uh, individuals and the truth that darwin would claim through his you know the scientific methods that he would utilize and um it's interesting how i guess as you're talking about this shift of 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 you know scientists coming out from the middle classes and kind of going into and gaining this more um social role uh that it, it kind of it's like a it's like a replacement of um the religious truth right mm -hmm. creating a, a power and so in a lot of ways you can think of the struggle for uh you know to of of whether evolution is true or not and the struggle of whether things or theories are true or not as struggles of power and you know who are the individuals that um, would lose power if a certain truth would come about right. and which ones uh, would gain from it is an interesting uh, analytical tool i think to look at a lot of the things that we uh, see in science in our daily lives and um when we're talking about like also going back to empire um 
uh, that kind of does uh, remind me of the way in which in our class uh, we were learning about um, you know the discovery of DNA and um, how a lot of the ways in which the technology itself that was used to investigate the structure of DNA was um, developed and used in looking at uh, mm -hmm. the microstructures mm -hmm. of certain resources um and if i recall it was uh, as as well it was cotton coal, coal and cotton were the two coal big ones and yeah. cotton which is obviously <laughs> like you know what yeah. the british empire uh, is yeah. famous for and where it gets a, it's well nt nt and sugar <laughs> and sugar um so that's that's yeah. this whole fascinating thing um but to to kind of slightly um I guess alternate directions or, or, or go into another mode. Um, well, I guess it's still related. Um, I guess is how do you see these competitive dynamics within sciences or cooperative dynamics within sciences inform what is produced uh, as truth and how um, how ideology itself um, notions of possibly dominance and and um, especially under a kind of masculine dominance, how that informs what science um, you uh, scientists produce. You know, I'm harkening back, of course, to you know slime molds and things like that. <laughs> and um, and and so it's it's two. I guess it's two questions. One is you know the the, the things you presented with the, the slime molds and feminist science, but also the ways in which uh, science has this competitive and almost uh, you know, this new competitive uh, taste or, or uh, within it that I would argue stems from a culture of capitalism. Uh, yes. <laughs> yes, and uh, there's, I think, more to it at the same uh, time. So what, there's a lot going on there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and But part of the reason there's a lot going on there is that there's a lot going on and we expect um, these big things, these big words like science or for that matter, religion or empire to be like um, stable, definable, nameable, mostly regular, identifiable things, right? and un and relatively uniform. It's like, well, that's that's science. There's this that's the science circle in the Venn diagram, and here's the religion circle in the Venn diagram, and we kind of know w which one goes where, and there's a lot of a lot, a lot of overlap. So first of all, there's right. There's all that differentiation within the sciences that uh, it is part of how change is going to ha happen, but also part of its own sort of um, not de-authorization, but I mean, science does have this by building. Uh, skepticism in at a fundamental level, at a methodological level, at least again in theory, 
right? It does have that kind of destabilizing force even within the uniformly uh, uh, categorizable thing uh, called sciences. But we know that within there, it's like, well, the physicists are the real scientists, and they're the only ones that really can tell you what's fundamentally true and solid and right. And that's because they're really close to mathematics uh, and prime and the, the the closest to mathematics and mathematics and geometry was the model for what definitive uh, knowledge and truth was all about. And that was there since the Greeks. So that's pre-capitalist, mm. right? But they do have that very um, cultural notion of what counts as true. It are those things that you can show, well, if this line intersects this line at that, then we know for sure that this is 90 degrees. That becomes the kind of model for all of truth. It's like, if you can start from these axioms, right? Mm. A straight line is this, a uh, perpendicular is this, um, uh, all of those things that kind of go together. And then once you, once you then move through all the layers of proof, right? You come to the only answer that you can possibly come to, which is that, you know, the cosine of theta is 0.76 is the kind of model for how that becomes the model for how science is supposed to work and what science does. And that's, that's in the scientist culture, the cultural imaginary of what they're doing. It's in the popular cultural imaginary of what scientists are doing. It's like, they're working it up. They're like finding the exact, all of the axioms, everything, all the facts, lining it up all, all correctly. And then you get that QED, that which was to be demonstrated answer. That's what science is, is that definitive, unchallengeable, right? Uh, uh, statement of truth. But that from a very narrow, well, that's good for geometry, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Now, well, then that's, that applies to physics and that applies to biology or before there was biology, it's natural history, which is a very different thing. So the, most, of the most of what counts as science doesn't fit and never fit that kind of model of get everything nailed down and then you get the final uh, answer. But it becomes part of the narrative that they tell themselves that they're doing. And that's part of their authority. And that's part of why they're different. It's like historians will always disagree about, you know, what the causes of the 1917 Russian Revolution was or the, the French Revolution. Oh, my God. Try to get agreement on that. Right. But that's because they don't have the method, the, the scientific method, or they're not dealing with the same kind of phenomena we are, or they don't have the same kind of uh, ideals. So <laughs> that was a way to try to say that nothing, science, it's the idea of science is an idea, right? And the real world 
almost never <laughs> matches up to the idea. And this is also something that, right, again, just to go back to the Greeks, they knew that as well, too. So I think what I was trying to say was that yes to capitalism, but also all of this other stuff, too, uh, too which, you know, I, I think is impo important to, to, to keep in mind. And this is in part why um, science in non-capitalist contexts, of which there are precious few, right, mm -hmm. becomes kind of, uh, becomes interesting in its own um, way. So m most recently, and I don't really work on this, but there are many anthropologists to do of what has been called traditional knowledge, right? The fact that there are people who have deep knowledge of thousands of plants without having the, at, at least the same sorts of categorical schemes that we do, the same sorts of understandings of what a plant is, right? Um, nevertheless, have real knowledge uh, about the natural world. And it's not just plants, but about the stars, uh, right? All of that, you know, astronomy is certainly <laughs> pre-capitalist. Mm -hmm. um, so... Uh, yeah, I think I was just complicating your story a little bit. <laughs> yeah, no, that's I, I I appreciate that. Yeah, I think I think um, when I when I think of you know capitalism and science, I usually frame again like I, I tried to frame it as a, as a cultural a culture of capitalism that maybe influences certain dynamics within science. So, for example, you have a competitive a spirit like with this oh yeah with the, was, yeah um discovery of dna and 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 those kinds of things but you seem very uh fired up to answer so go ahead <laughs> i know no because it was the competitive spirit part that really uh first uh got me going and and back to darwin again see i really missed this and so i'm gonna have to figure out how to get darwin back into this uh course because it, it is uh so great and so complicated at the same time because right we know right historians know that um it takes a long time it takes a while for darwin to kind of put it all together right and but one of the things that he puts together or brings into you know his observations of finches in the galapagos island is his understanding of what is really the first kinds of works of political economy and so it's malthus on population and agriculture and growth and expansion and all of that and the fact that you know there are limited resources compared to the right the need that that's uh there and therefore you have to compete for those limited resources and so part of darwin from the beginning was a not a justification but very much based on an understanding of competition it's natural it's what humans do mm -hmm. uh and that's what it means to survive and so those kinds of mutual justifications between 
uh, er, early laissez-faire capitalism, right, a and early evolutionary th theory were really, I mean, Darwin's explicit in saying, you know, it was Malthus that really kind of made things click for me, right? uh, and not just looking at finches and, right. and and putting and just thinking about the natural world. He's thinking about the social world. Mm -hmm. um, so evolutionary theory becomes a way for the British Empire to justify itself to the world and for capitalism to rationalize itself as, yeah, well, maybe some of the effects aren't so great and maybe some parts of government should do some things about that. And so that's the early welfare uh, movements are, are sorry, but like not too much or don't expect us to like, you know, be uh, restraining our profits or doing anything uh, like that. Um, because we're, you know, we need to be free to compete because that's how the whole thing works. It works that way in the natural world. It works the, that way in the social political world. So be nice to have a different political economy, but that's just the way things are, right? We, we, we were born to be capitalists, to be crude about it, right? But at the same time that that's going on, and at the same time that, that that's going on, you also have the real radicals in Britain who are also huge fans of evolutionary theory, right? but for entirely different reasons, because it shows that, yeah, no one was born to like be in charge of anything. We're all just, we're all competing and there's no reason why you folks should be in charge because you're no better than us. And so, and we actually, by being more scientific and having greater knowledge than the people in power do, and certainly than the people running the church do, right? You know, get out of the way. So Darwin is used both to justify empire and to critique uh, empire, and to justify capitalism and to critique uh, capitalism. So it's a great, right? Uh, story about not only do science and politics go together, they go together in different ways mm -hmm. and in ways that conflict with each other in, in, in some ways. So that's when things get really fun. Yeah, no, this <laughs> the way in which science and, you know, what we on the other hand, I'm 100% clear. It's like, do not be teaching intelligent design in public school <laughs> science classes. Like, absolutely not. You you teach evolutionary theory because that is the that is the truth that is the scientific truth there accept no substitutes um we're not even having this conversation unless you like bring it to court and, and force it because we're not we're, we're not going to do that because that is religion <laughs> no and i say i'm so kind of adamant about this because there was a sort of sociologist of science, uh, Steve Fuller, who, um, and I don't mind saying this on uh, tape, I was never a big fan of, <laughs> right? And then he testified in the Kitzmiller trial, which was in Pennsylvania, which was the big intelligent design trial in, I don't know, uh, I'm a bad historian now that I've been an anthropologist for so long. Um, <laughs> Um, 
But he testified, right? So he gets up in court and says, as a science studies expert, I can tell you that, you know, there's no such, basically, there's no such thing as science. It's all a story about, you know, how we group things like I just kind of gave you. It's no different than doing religion. And, you know, you can't, uh, you can't show me why intelligent design should not be taught alongside um, evolutionary theory from this, you know, philosophical, social uh, perspective, right? And he was an expert witness. And many others of us in the science studies community were absolutely horrified that he did this. It's like, it might be, uh, it's certainly an argument that a number of the people in our field have made uh, that, you know, at, at least uh, at some kind of academic level, we should consider everything e equally and people believe this for good reasons. And But it was also um, completely tone deaf politically. And anybody who had any political sense at all knew that those guys don't give a shit about science. They just want prayer back in the school. <laughs> and they're using evolutionary theory as the wedge to, right, to get onto the school board or to force the issue or to say, you know, right. So. <laughs> yeah, I mean, scientists uh, and the scientific community, like, and we've seen this throughout history, has been preyed upon specifically for this kind of also, I guess, a tendency to try to weigh all arguments within their framework and, you know, give the other side an ability to, to speak in this kind of, kind of democratic, I guess, uh, more way. Uh, but, you know, we've seen with um, all the tobacco industry and the fossil fuel industry. And, you know, now, you know, it, this is a big discussion for that I put my my focus on, but same thing with the meat industry. There's this huge push of kind of oh, here are our scientists and you know our experts, and uh, they will they're they're a they're a good counterbalance to the whole collective of of scientists. That this kind of you know you're getting this um, this notion of the individual heroic scientist coming uh, to deliver the true truth. And they're battling this whole misinformed, quote unquote, mob mentality um, collective of scientists. But you in the class claim that one of the things that really gives truth produced by science its truthiness, its, uh, you know, its, its kind of substance <laughs> is specifically that it gets produced by this, uh, you know, expert community that has done all this scientific work to uh, develop their arguments, to look at the evidence, and then that they have checks on themselves within this community. They have whole structures in which they validate their theories or not based on rules, based on skepticism, based on peer review. And that's how you get some of these, you know, th this, this kind of uh, truth or approximating to the truth come out and so you know it's very good that you're you're um you're kind of 
reminding me to remind our audience that like we are pro science yeah uh you know it's not just two uh philosophizing individuals saying that oh everything is relative throw it all up in the air um because that gets that's get sprayed upon it's also not the way that reality works reality isn't um i guess you know reality it's a very also contentious term but it's not like everything is just nebulous it's intersected (laughs) and it's it's shifting and it's changing and it's mutating and all those things um or even if it is nebulous we actually have developed quite good knowledge about aerosols mm, (laughs) so we can analyze clouds that's fine right so we don't you know i i think we think that or thought that we need these precise, clean, <laughs> absolute definitions in order to think at all. And I think what I'm saying is like, no, we don't. <laughs> or, I mean, it's nice to have that s- sometimes, but it can also be misleading. And again, as you said, right, even s- scientists, but it's no different. So your description of why the scientists are are able to arrive at uh, some degree of truthiness, right? Also applies to historians and to anthropologists. It's like <clears throat> we have peer review, we have structures where people come together and argue stuff out and have disagreements or agreements or work through the evidence, right? And we have evidence uh, too. I mean, we're all we're all engaged with collecting data and analyzing uh, data. So those things that were supposed to differentiate science from other intellectual pursuits, those two don't f- fall into, they, they're cloudier than they are, or, or at least in some places, they're cloudier more than they are distinct. But we can still analyze the cloudiness. It just takes longer, and it also takes a different form, and part of the form that it takes is much more discursive than, you know, coming, going down the list of axioms until you arrive at the QED numerical, right, proper uh, value. Um, Clouds just, you know, require narrative and you're not going to get the kind of closure and or or not always going to get the kind of closure and certainty that you might in other domains using uh, other sciences. But, you know, that's kind of the way things are. And that doesn't make my my form of knowledge somehow lesser than your form of knowledge. It means that we're producing different kinds of knowledge out of different kinds of expert communities with different kinds of criteria. And we shouldn't expect them to all kind of like converge onto the same method or even the same set of answers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you have, you know, it's funny you say this, um, you know, the, 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 the way in which uh, you have science and then other academic or intellectual pursuits kind of overlapping. I, I do think that in a lot of ways, you know, you could say that, oh, like they, they differ in maybe certain methods, but even within science, obviously, like, and I, I, I really want to get into this, um, you know, the way in which, uh, the biologists, uh, the gen- geneticists, and and then the 
epidemiologists as both scientists, you know, their methods are radically different and have radically different underpinnings, but in all ways, like academia and intellectual categories, um, they're, the, they fall into buckets of uh, funding, right? They, I, yeah. I think a lot of the categories are just produced by what gets funded and, you know, the priorities of the person that uh, wants to fund uh, certain uh, productions of knowledge over others, right? And, you know, there's the whole debate of how humanities are being cut right now. And um, there's this, yep. you know, <laughs> CS and STEM is becoming more um, more driven, possibly because you have, you know, an, an empire that wants to really beat another emerging empire <laughs> with, uh, you know, developing AI first and uh, making sure that, you know, maybe they don't yeah. get the resources also to de develop certain technologies. But um, if you could, like, maybe talk about um, specifically this thing that you call epidemiologics, right? The, the way that that is a science, mm -hmm. but a difference from our normal conceptions of science and how it fits into this definition of your kind of, which you, you presented us as a post-normal science versus a normal science. Um, <clears throat> always with the big hard questions that when the time is running out. <laughs> um, no, it, 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 it's a great um it, it, it's a great question, and I guess I'll s at least start, and I'm sure I won't get to finish, but um, I think this was uh, why I taught about those feminist philosophers and feminist scientists and feminist scientist philosophers, right, um, who... Right, and this wasn't. In some ways, this was always the uh, one way of defining what was scientific about science was not so much the status of the knowledge that it had and the certainty of it, but the scientific method, the process by which it got to that, and that's what we sh you should always be f f focusing on when we're thinking about what is science and how does it work best and, and, and all of those questions. So I think the, the feminists in one way just kind of re-emphasized what was uh, there, which is that it's about process and about how we collectively work and think uh, together with all of our limited resources and limited languages uh, and limited funding um, to, you know, kind of, I, I don't want to be too sort of um, blasé about it, but like, <laughs> I, I'm, I, I just lost it now. Uh, to, it's just, we're just working it out. We're just doing our best, right? And trying to do it a little bit better, right? And when you real, and when, so when you focus on process, that focuses then on, it's like, well, who's, who is it that's actually doing that process? And then you realize, oh, well, it's largely white men. <laughs> Perhaps that's consequential for, what, how they think and what they think is important and what they think counts as a, 
strong answer uh, or, or as a good question. And so maybe, right, if we re are really so committed to process, we should diversify the kinds of people who are engaged in that process, right? And that does, and we know it to have a profound uh, effect. And so this is great and great for the end because it allows me to get back to the competition thing, which I had always been meaning to say too, in that kind of the contradictory interpretations of uh, Darwin as both pro-empire and anti-empire and how that depended, both of them, on the idea that nature and human nature in particular is fundamentally competitive. And that's just, you know, the struggle for re resources, uh, blah, blah, blah. Right? But now, right, and, and this is almost like geometrically provable, um, you, you can say that when women come into the field of primatology, and therefore evolutionary theory in the 1970s as a result of kind of first wave uh, feminism, they start noticing different things. One, they start looking at different species. So instead of being so focused on chimpanzees and gorillas, which have very particular behavioral pat patterns, Let's focus on lemurs and langurs and all of these other uh, primates uh, to which we are related. And that was the really radical core of Darwin, which is that, yeah, this is all there is. Mm. And we all got this. <clears throat> and all of those other creatures, that's all they got too. <clears throat> but but by looking at different uh, species uh, of primates and by looking at uh, different things that they're doing. So instead of let's watch them fight, <laughs> it's like let's watch them what they do with their young and their infants. And look, the biological mother is just handing off her infant to this, what is called the aloe mother. And actually, look, they're totally dependent, not on competition with that other tribe of uh, lemurs or langurs, but uh, on the cooperation and collaboration and goodwill that exists uh, among them. And so now we're, we're headed, I, I'm confident, uh, and I would put money on this if there were a betting pool that actually held one, that's like evolutionary theory is coming to be organized more around collaboration than around competition. Mm -hmm. And the science of it, uh, or what science says about human nature has, has changed or is in the process of changing, or is really about to fully tip over into um, it's not, it, it's at least as much human nature to be collaborative as it is to be competitive. And those are two evolutionary forces that have to be kind of thought uh, together at the very least. 
And it's argue, I think the actual even better and stronger argument is that the collaboration is more important because if you, if you're competing with your infant, something's wrong. Yeah. <laughs> you're not doing it right. I'll leave it there. How's that for a place to stop? No, that's a, that's a great place <laughs> to stop. Um, I uh, just uh, two small points to tie that <laughs> off. Like I do remember that um, within Darwin's Descent of Man, he actually did write a lot about how an integral part of the human, you know, evolution and why we're so successful su successful. <clears throat> Is because of cooperation, even though the mm -hmm. book was full, filled with sexism and things like that. But and and, and so that's really interesting. Um, yeah. But that that would be all in like uh, you know. Thank you so much for spending this time with me. And like, if you have any ending comments, you can go ahead. But I found that <laughs> finale of, of yeah. kind of a yeah. call to action, almost <laughs> of cooperation, to be perfect. Yeah, that's good. No, I'm happy to leave it there. That's what it was fun. Uh, I'd be happy to, I, I have a lot more stories, so, you know, I could come back anytime, but it's been great. I've enjoyed talking with you. Yeah, I feel like we've only like scratched the little surface <laughs> of, of, of this domain. So thank you so much. This was great. Thank you, Anthony.